0: Welcome to the first episode of the year 2021 of the Material Analysis Podcast. And a big thank you to our audience for having stuck with us so long. Yes. Um, This episode is going to be a retrospective episode. We will basically cover in very short some interesting things, some important things which happened in two thousand twenty. Not all of these things are things on which the podcast has managed to make episodes. Some of them we have talked about in fair detail. So many things happened in 2020, right? It's almost a meme at this point that the year has been extremely cruel to people. Uh, We will try to also cover some of the points which are probably not that fresh in the memory of people. I am your host Chandu, as usual. And with me today are uh, comrades Bela and Pramod. And let us begin. It would be a fairly episodic structured episode, fairly sequential, a bit boring perhaps. In its structure, we'll try to keep it interesting. So let's begin with with the January of 2020. And what we see in 2020 uh, at the start of the year are the continuation of the anti ca anti-NRC protests, which have been carried over since two th- late 2019. We see the attack on GNU after the two attacks which happened in 2019 by the police on uh, AMU and Jamia, very brutal attacks on students. We see the arrest of Sharjil. Something we want to talk about a little, but it is not just about protests we want to talk about in that month. But first, uh, Comrade Pramod, tell us about some uh, important points of the January end of the protests and specifically things which went bad. How did the parties and the civil society reacted? How did things happen with the brutality on students? How did things happen? the various sort of hypocrisies we saw, not just around Sharjil, but around the issue of NRC in Assam. If you could please remind yeah. our NRC
1: in Assam, the hypocrisy started like years before that as well. So like, I mean, like, it's not something new. I I don't quite remember like the exact timeline of how these activist groups work. Um, I do remember that in 2019, before the CA pa- was passed, um, There were anti-NRC rallies in Bengal, which were attended by, uh, and it was in the context of the NRC in Assam, there were anti-NRC rallies in Bengal, which were attended by people like Naya Kumar and uh, Kavita Krishna, etc. as well. Um, I know that in January, uh, groups like Pinsratod and all were organizing uh, events that were supportive of uh, the NRC in Assam. Right. And, you know, of course, uh, people from Prindarathur would be arrested later on. Devangona Kolita and, uh, in, at this pro-NRC, that was completely erased. Okil Kogo is entire pro-NRC, pro-detention camps position was erased because of that. And, you know, they were fundamentally, their positions are fundamentally different from people like Sharjil Imams, uh, where Shahjil's entire, the reason he was actually, arrested was the fact that he opposed the detention camps in Assam, and uh, he basically called for a protest uh, against that, and by basically blockading uh, the highway to Assam. Um, So yeah, and I mean like I've seen it in, I mean like you would obviously know uh, from personal experience yourself that there were some various various, uh, organizations, various prominent activists, I won't take their names necessarily. I mean, I can take Yogendra Yadav's name, but there were some other activists as well who are uh, still very, very well regarded in left circles who have been consistently supporting the NRC. And, uh, you know, whenever they're uh, pushed, uh, uh, they, they, uh, they basically feign ignorance sometimes. And sometimes they uh, will outright defend it as a question of hashtag indigenous rights or something of that sort
2: Uh, Yes,
0: it was was extremely disgusting what these people did. And as you said, not just Yogendra Yadav, but so-called comrades from various left organizations. Yeah, Yogendra Yadav right now is obviously
1: a joke in leftist circles. There are others who are not. We are
0: not even talking about people like Yogendra Yadav, but you know, various student unions in various college campuses, these so-called woke Progressive College campuses. No,
1: I also, also like for instance, very radical activists from, I, from Telangana, let's put it this way. One mm. rad, very radical activist from Telangana who is part of all these big activist groups.
0: So basically 2020 for the podcast began on this extremely sad note, not just because of how the protests were going and the, not just because of how the students were being crushed. And not just because of the UAP arrests and all of that, but it was very disappointing to be backstabbed by people in the movement, people in the various joint action committees who basically capitulated to the ethnonats in Assam, completely diluted the movement, insisted that, you know, we throw the uh, Muslims under the bus, we throw the Bengalis under the bus, and insisted on, you know, make it a... Uh, you know, mainstream Tiranga waving, uh, banality spewing, uh, celebrity hosting uh, sort of event. And we all saw how useful all of those things were. We'll not harp on it, but would request our audience to go through our many older episodes on the NRC, which we made. We had uh, multiple episodes. We had an episode where we had our guest Gautam Bhatia come and explain the NRC situation in Assam from a legal point of view. We had an episode where Comrade Pramod himself got caught up in the uh, pogrom, the anti-Muslim program that will happen next month in February in Delhi and we will talk about that. We had multiple episodes on NRC and, and we would really like our audience to go back on that and see the sort of ugliness that happened in that time and try to analyze how how, you know, the poli- that kind of politics which capitulates itself to nationalism why it, it becomes impossible to convert it into anything which is useful for the progressive cause.
2: Mm-hmm. But
0: it was not just SEA and RC protests that were happening in January. There were other things happening. And I would like Comrade Bella to talk a bit about these things. One of these things was that uh, in on the international spectrum, there was a lot of ugliness happening. Kasim Soleimani had been killed. Yuan uh, Guaido had been imposed upon Venezuela by the imperialists. Uh, in Israel, this corrupt asshole of a well, U- 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 Bibi uh, Netanyahu, he wanted to pardon himself of all the corruption charges. And uh, uh, Google's parent company, Alphabet. Uh, was uh, caught up in court cases in Europe uh, and you know, was getting fines uh, for the monopoly practices. So bad things all around the world, especially with American interventions in South America, their usual shenanigans. And one other tragedy was about to begin because in January 2020, COVID-19 had been detected in China. And soon mm-hmm. would become an extreme catastrophe there. Mm-hmm. So, um, Bella, why why don't we talk a bit about Venezuela, Israel, Google, even I the mean, forest fire in Australia? Like, let's talk about the shit show of the year with American. Canadians.
2: On some level, um, promote. Can you mute yourself? <laughs> Um, on some level, it's kind of uh, interesting to me in retrospect how much everything seemed to be building to a fever pitch before you know COVID would hit us all um, in the sense of both the climate catastrophe, the economy, American intervention, elections of tremendous import that were being meddled with, um, all of these sort of coinciding in a way that could really reveal itself over the next few months right um once covid hit um uh, about just how deep the nexus is between capitalism climate change um you know global power structures imperialist uh, power formations particularly alliances between really corrupt people and really corrupt governments um yeah i think january january feels like a very distant thing because of all the all the months that then followed it but it's really crucial in some ways to really sort of uh, to shape the events of the next few months. And I'm also thinking of, you know, COVID already having begun spreading from China at that time, which which many countries underplayed or did not take seriously enough and then was suddenly forced to confront. They would react in
0: February, like we would see reactions happening in February. But in January, really, it was very much a China problem at that point.
2: It was very much a China problem and it was very much this idea that it probably was not going to affect other countries nearly as much. There was a sort of weird uh, dismissal that it would be that dangerous. People were trying to treat and, it as... You know,
0: racist xenophobia you know, had already begun in January. Yeah. I remember Indians yeah. talking nearingly about China and...
1: All I remember from that time uh, in February is that... Uh, you know, it was just before the Delhi riots, but like, I remember Rahul Gandhi raising an alarm about COVID-19 and basically the BJP dismissing him and saying that, you know.
0: Yes. So, uh, uh, one thing, one commonality which we should, if the world should have realized last year, and not just about the NRC in Assam and not just about COVID or not just about, uh, you know, the shenanigans which America has been doing, but the one Common thread which goes through it is that one of the biggest that exists in this world is nationalism. In the mm-hmm. name of nation states and borders, the amount of brutality people can do on people, the amount of stupidities they can do to themselves, the amount of willingness they have to have their own pockets cut by politicians, the mm-hmm. amount of garbage we have seen last year, it all boils down to nationalism. In February, Nationalism reaches fever peach at other place. We have Brexit, of course. Uh, yes. uh, we see a very interesting uh, play of nationalism with COVID. On one hand, we are seeing COVID being called in February basically as China's fault and China's, you know, China being this horrible place with wet markets and all. China, on the other hand, for its domestic audience, also trying to raise up nationalism uh xi jinping declares people's war on coronavirus yes mm-hmm. america and its war on this disease and war on drugs and war on that china also star- has started to do people's war on coronavirus mm-hmm. um, Vietnam and italy were two countries which showed how to handle this well and how to handle it not well so in mm-hmm. february Vietnam immediately starts to take this seriously, starts testing, it stops flights from China, it goes mm-hmm. into this militaristic mode and everything is devoted into stopping COVID before it can even start. Italy, on the other hand, has a very lackadaisical attitude. Uh, there is blame game going around in Italy. It completely uh, behaves irresponsibly towards it and the cases spread there fast. And around Mm. this point, uh, Donald Trump, Dolan Trump visits India Mm. and the pogrom in Delhi starts. Yes. Uh, I would like Comrade Pramod to talk a bit about this because Comrade Pramod has experiences with what happened in Delhi. And we would like to remind our audience of the very serious things which happened uh, that point, yeah.
1: Well, uh, I mean, like, I've already you can refer back to that episode, uh, and the thing is, uh, it's been a year almost, I think. Uh, so, I mean, like, that stuff isn't as fresh to me as uh, it was back then. So, I mean, like, you should really go back and listen to that particular episode, uh, but at the same time, I think, like, you know, it was pretty horrible. Uh, I mean, like, and uh, the entire thing that, you know, one of, I mean, in India's second largest city, a right-wing mob just completely terrorizing uh, Muslim Muslim majority neighborhoods, etc. And in the way it was planned, you know, I mean, like, they were actually supposed to defer it until after Trump left. The idea was that, you know, in case the ARP lost, that is like, you know, these thugs were basically like given the order to clear out all these protest sites uh, in the event that ARP lost, but then the ARP won and, you know, Trump came and they were supposed to probably do it after Trump left, but, you know, they got excited and they did this anyway. Obviously, it was prefaced by, you know, people like uh, Unurag Thakur and... uh, what was his name? Kapil Mishra. Was this Kapil Mishra? Or Kapil yeah, Mishra, right? So that's his name. Yeah, as a goli those and you know, and all that other stuff, you know, which basically was direct incitement to riots. Obviously, none of them ever got prosecuted for it. Um, instead, you had some uh, AAP ka, local AAP counselor who basically was uh, you know trying to defend himself. Him getting you know thrown under the bus by the AAP and you know and, you know, him being charged uh, for inciting riots and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, you saw that entire right-wing spin on how it was uh, basically, quote-unquote, a both-sided event, and basically how Muslims were the primary aggressor, although anyone who saw what happened on that day uh, could tell you that basically there were trucks full of, uh, you know, lorries full of bricks and, you know, weapons coming in from uh, the east of Where the protests were happening uh, with the specific intention of attacking these protests. Uh, So, yeah.
2: Add to the fact that, um, you know, now it's also come to the fore that uh, a lot of the social media messages, which, com- which basically had a lot of hate speech, uh, were basically reported and tried to be removed from Facebook. And we now know that Anki and uh, several sort of Facebook executives um, delayed or just ignored, um, you know, pulling down these posts. They remained on social media and continued to foment communal hate at a time when it really could have been de-escalated. Um, though we know that Kapil Mishra was was never going to face any consequences for what he said. But um, the kind of role that, uh, you know, social media has played in fomenting this kind of uh, violence, enabling Hindu mobs to sort of target Muslim neighborhoods and, and really circulate in social media, I think is... Oh, yeah, there were
1: actually, there were actually, I remember at the time, there were posts that were bragging about, you know, yes. killing Muslims, etc. Uh, yes. Which were obviously reported, but nothing was done about them. Yes. Uh, there were people who were openly discussing that going into, like people from Ghaziabad and all these other places yes. on the UP Delhi border were basically discussing going into Delhi to murder Muslims. Yes. Uh, was the open discussion of this and now this, nobody took action
2: against that yeah. and I mean, I had, I had a chance to talk to someone who was a Facebook moderator, content moderator, uh, you know one of those outsourced company sort of low level uh, hires who's just basically constantly having to monitor Facebook content day in and day out and one of the things he said was that when this happened, you know, the many people who are content moderators continually flagged these posts tracked their circulation and, and sent it to higher ups and it was very clear that Facebook was simply not interested in actually taking these posts down. So in some ways, you know, the conversation about hate speech really comes down to, you know, the idea that a few sort of bad actors are circulating this and the company is good and it should do its job in curtailing the circulation of hate speech. That really disappears when you see the composition of Facebook India and the fact that it is actively overrun by Sanghis who have no compunction in, you know, circulating these messages and ensuring that pogroms can carry on without interruption. Option. So oh, I think we really yeah, need to change that, need that
0: conversation. Episode on we really need an episode on technology and virality and hate speech and, and, oh, yeah. and especially, that especially that
1: contrasting people. what happened last year with Facebook and you know what's happening with Twitter Ma- Ma- Mahima Kaul yes. and you yes. know the threatening to, threatening yeah, Twitter did, moderators did, we, with
0: jail and t- for this yes, uh, so uh, all was not. Um, evil, some was just weird in February. Mm-hmm. So there was this incident of the flat earther, Mad Mike Hughes, who made a rocket to prove the earth is flat and his rocket crashed. So that was weird.
2: Um, I didn't know about this at all. <laughs>
0: yeah, 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 these are the things I know about. So one interesting thing was that Parasite won Oscar. Uh, I remember this really cursed stuff with, like, people, some people praising it as some gigantic, you know, display uh, of class politics in the movie, which is a nonsense take. And then there mm-hmm. were some people who were shitting on that movie saying that it doesn't show class politics well enough. And both of these takes I found extremely weird because for me it was a very average movie which was a good feel good whatever i i I did not think really it was important it for was it to movie. have it, it, uh, it was a pretty
1: good- uh, I just think, like, you know, people get tried getting
2: way too much into it. But, like, it was all. The, the, the Oscar f- like, the Oscar, the Oscar Best Film nominations have been seriously hit and miss, right? We know all of the fiasco around La La Land and Moonlight and things like that. I mean, people give a lot of credit to the Oscar Best Film category as if it were out of the what arbiter. What I
0: don't like it's still. All right. Uh, in that month, another interesting thing happened was that. Uh, uh, Neanderthal fossil was found in Iraq, one of the oldest ones so for mm-hmm. me that's very interesting and another thing that happened which was very interesting for me is that Pope Francis loudly warned against the social and economic implications of AI and mm-hmm. that, is something that is also very interesting to me I would like to uh, talk about more about like public communication of AI in a future episode so mm-hmm. much let's move on from that horrible program in Delhi to March, Mm -hmm. people have started to take COVID a bit seriously because we have seen a massive spike worldwide. In India, the lockdown begins in the middle of March. Uh, By this time, things have become really bad all around. There are mass graves in Italy and Spain. There are... Stories of mass burning of corpses in Wuhan, China, but China has a much better grip on the situation than it has. Could yeah. mm-hmm.
2: yeah. yeah. you please yourself? mute or yeah.
0: something? Yeah. Sorry,
2: uh, so just so like something.
0: Is, There is uh, around this time, the worst recession in India's history, it begins. Uh, there is also a really horrible migrant labor crisis and almost a criminal way in which the Indian state reacted to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Before we move on to the uh, non... Because there were other tragedies as well, and I want to talk a bit about them, but before we move on, let's talk a bit about COVID in March and our initial response to it, how we initially started. I hope you all remember um, the, the... clownery that began in march in india
1: oh yeah uh, we uh, uh, did an episode on it, did episode yeah,
0: on it. it. it again, we did an episode but I still like both of you to remind our audience so Comrade Bela, why don't you go first how did the migrant labor <laughs> crisis when it began how did what did you think about it and when the when the crash started what did you think and how the indian state reacted to it
2: I mean, the, one of my first responses when I realized that um, lockdown seemed to be the way to go, right? To curtail the virus, to actually keep people at home um, and to prevent the, the spread even further. One was to obviously stop flights from, you know, international flights and travel more broadly, which I think is in some ways significant because we're also talking about an international labor situation here where people, you know, who with visas and things like that actually struggling to get back to their home countries. But when, when you realize that the lockdown is a solution, you understand particularly in india with an informal economy sector that's huge um people who live lo- people who are literally daily wage laborers you're looking at a tremendous crisis in the offing and we like the people i was talking to straight away were kind of like this is going to be terrible for the daily wage labor situation this is going to be terrible for people who you know work in construction or other informal sector um Areas in the city. Um, and what became increasingly obvious is without receiving, without having work to do and without receiving wages, that the only solution for several of these workers was to get back home. But in a lockdown with all the transport having shut down, that was simply not feasible. So the migrant worker, you know, those horrible uh, images and videos of, of these people having to walk back thousands of kilometers to their home states really was appalling. And the Indian government's first attempts to, you know, d- dismiss or trivialize what was happening. Uh, or these small sorts of setups where they were either offering them uh, some some shelter, some food packets and things like that were clearly inadequate. Um, it seemed very obvious that the first few messaging, the, the messaging that went out initially about COVID was entirely targeted at the middle class. It did not even think about what the informal sector was going to have to go through. The fact that many of them live in very temporary, uh, insecure housing in the cities, and the fact that migrant laborers in India travel tremendous distances to just be Able to find work to get employed, um, and both their financial situation as well as their actual spatial, you know, uh, resource sort of situation when it came to housing was just not something that the government prioritized at any minute. The only messaging that came out was literally about going to balcony to chase away. like this feel good idea that you know uh, a, a sentiment of being united or whatever against the virus was going to help protect us all, except people who live literally live day to day on everyday wages um, were clearly going to suffer in a way that nobody was willing to anticipate. So really terrible. Um, All sorts of panic created about, you know, shops being open or buses running or trains running or whatever it is. Completely inadequate messaging or planning um, to anticipate any of this. It was very clear that this was a PR stunt, I don't know, maybe targeted at at the rest of the world to show that India is doing something. Um, And then of course, media channels on mass sort of participating in this nonsense and having people come and talk about. What a great, uh, you know, message of lockdown the prime minister is given, and so on and so forth. I mean, just appalling and really, really tragic. Um, it, and so much of it is avoidable. So much of it is, uh, you know, if you if you just plan for it a little bit in advance, it could have it could have been managed and handled so much better. So much unnecessary wastage of resources. So that, and then I'm also remembering Tablighi Jamaat happening in the middle of the month, and this absolute crazy fear about, you know, the, job, the jihadi yeah. virus or whatever.
0: So, Tablighi Jamaat incident would happen in April, we will talk about that. I
2: End of March, but okay. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think in some ways, just knowing that that India was so unprepared for what was coming, um, and also by this point we were hearing what symptoms of COVID were, we were hearing about COVID mortality rates. So uh, I personally felt a great deal of panic about what uh, what was going to happen in India because the West at least has an established sort of you know Western countries have a sort of public healthcare system that responds to emergencies fairly effectively. Uh, public healthcare in India is simply not not equipped to, to face the numbers. I mean, we were hearing stories about Italy and Spain, uh, hospitals being overrun by people who needed ventilators, that hospitals didn't have ventilators, and so on and so forth. I mean, think about India and what, uh, you know, what kind of population each public health care center serves. Uh, primary health care centers very often are, you know, in, in rural areas, for instance, serve lakhs of people at a time. So it was a health crisis that I think I dreaded. Um, I still dread it in some way, because I feel like India is still taking it far too lightly. But um, we also know that... The Indian government would blatantly lie about what it was doing on the ground. So, um, yeah, I I don't know. I, uh, for me, March was literally a month of a great deal of shock and anxiety. I think uh, for for all of these reasons, it was deeply, deeply troubling and nerve wracking to try and understand what could be done. You know, to to actually intervene in this uh, in a way that would be effective. And we know that India was simply not equipped. Um, the migrant worker crisis at that point of time,
1: it could have been very well avoided. Like, with simply the fact that our Prime Minister, you know, he's a lover of theatre. So, he basically, you know, instead of like doing that entire grand show on one day, when he was evidently planning a lockdown a week or two afterwards, he would have just said that, you know, the states need to prepare for a lockdown which is incoming. And he could have done that. But again, much like demonetization, he decided to do it overnight. So, yeah, because
0: he liked theatre. You are completely correct there. Um The whole... Like I had mentioned in a previous episode, like this whole obsession as with standing on a balcony waving at the masses. The whole song and dance, literal song and dance in certain aspects, he made out of COVID was extremely criminal. But two other things also happened which deserve mentioning in March. One was the Malaysian political crisis, and the other was the reprehensible shooting of people in Kabul Gurdwara. Like, do you guys remember this? Yeah, a <laughs> uh,
2: political crisis, or did you say Malaysian?
0: Malaysian, yes, Malaysian.
2: Why yes, didn't
1: promote world at all? <laughs> Mahathir and everything.
0: Ar-10 April, so we can like go through these bad things. All right, like one really bad thing which happened was that uh, Daniel Pearl's murderers were left off. Another mm. really bad thing was that what happened was how the British, uh, in Britain, the Labour Party treated Corbyn. Keir Star, won around this time. It was horrible, the sort of political garbage we saw from that place. Another thing that happened around this time, the really shameful incident of how uh, an Islamophobic story was created about the Tablighi Jamaat, how the whole super spreader nonsense was created. Another disgusting thing that happened very small, disgusting thing in comparison to the other ones, but still deserves mentioning. Do you guys remember Shamika Ravi and her Twitter hot takes in April? Her uh, like, uh, yeah, 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 Another horrible thing that happened. Oh, we we April had tons of horrible things. All right, another horrible thing that happened. But isn't was Shamika
1: Ravi's Twitter hot takes have an
2: ongoing phenomenon? Like, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: So, so, so hot take. We should be taking objection to April.
0: <laughs> Gautam, Avlakha and Anand Teltumde get arrested um, yeah. like that, mm. that was pretty horrible. Another horrible thing that happened was that not only was there asympto- asymptomatic spread which had been detected and mm-hmm. community transmission, but there was public denial of community transmission. There was outright lying by the state.
2: So yeah.
0: a lot of shit went down in April. One horrible thing, April to me. So we, so personally, uh, my lockdown began in mid March, right? Yes. And from mid March till April, end, we had no idea what's gonna happen. No. Like we had no, lockdown would end. I was completely isolated. Uh, shops were closed. Everything was closed. I, you know, bought food for three weeks and just hunkered down in my apartment. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, completely. I, it was a very bad time, and then you hear the news. You hear Anand the tail You hear Gautam Navlaka. You hear how Sai Baba is being treated. Uh, yeah. You hear these. You know them making this whole story about Tablighi Jamaat, and you know you almost feel that you know the fascists are gonna go on a rampage again. Mm-hmm. It's horrible, and then you like open Twitter and see like fucking hot takes from Shamikaravi was talking about how education should be privatized and how like you know we have we are gonna beat like COVID in like one month because the government is awesome and whatever and oh god it was such a horrible month like yeah. I mean
2: I, I I think there is something to be uh something worth thinking about. And for me, actually, March, April, May were a bit of a blur. Like if you ask me to separate distinct events or moments at the time, I think all I felt was just overwhelmed by the amount of news that was pouring in. A lot of it bad, if not all of it bad. Um, and then and then, really sort of trying to, you know, to step back and to be able to analyze it just seemed impossible at the time. So a lot of these these events that you're mentioning um, just seemed to be symptomatic. I mean, I was reading, oh, I remember at that point, reading something about the role of, you know, global capitalism and sort of the flows of capital and how COVID is in some ways really a symptom of that. And the reason it can spread so fast and so widely is, um, is, is really the the stage of capitalism we're at and the ways in which people and, you know, money and, and goods need to travel across the world, right? So I feel like somewhere down the line, I was kind of really in a very fuck capitalism mode at the time, because it just felt like the reason we're here is
0: about one of those capitalism things because this happens in May Yeah, it really hits me so I am like in complete shock about all of these things especially the worker crisis you know every day you are seeing these workers walking and it makes you like how horrible capitalism is and then in May they start these special trains called Shramik special trains and like corpses arriving you have like some of the stuff from that time was bad, like
2: and really, like, things I didn't know how to trust numbers because in India you don't have an effective data, the NRC, right?
0: The NRC thing, entire communities in like the border regions in Assam were not considered citizens anymore, and you had entire villages on the verge of starving. I remember yeah. like uh, Pramod here asking me to collect some money, and I remember like how like. fucking like, everything felt like an emergency mode. Everything felt like an emergency response. Like, we were all day, like, trying to, like, figure out how to make things better. And yeah. in the middle of all that bullshit, then another thing happens in May, which is Amphan. Right. Like,
1: it, it was one of the worst cyclones in our... history. And mean, like, I think, I mean, like, what usually happens with cyclones in uh, West Bengal is that they actually go and they go into Bangladesh. But it was one of the worst cyclones in Cyclone Bola, which happened in 1970, which completely wrecked Bangladesh itself, but like also had an impact on West Bengal. Yeah. Uh, there was actually a lot of devastation in the uh, in the Bonds. Uh, like people were like, uh, so many people became completely homeless. And, I, and it was also, it's, it's also very political in retrospect, we did an episode on that, but. Uh, we did an episode on Amfan itself, but like you know, it was something that happened in retrospect. Now that I think about it, which is that um, it was really a political turning point as well, because that is like if you had to say a defining moment where things seem to be going south for the Tamil Congress, that would be the particular event where things actually went south. Uh, because right after that you had you know firstly you had all these relief efforts etc then there were allegations of uh you know tmc workers stealing uh relief uh you know rice that was meant for relief etc and all that sort of thing so yeah. that was a big turn and and you know prior to that in fact the cinema was actually looking extremely strong like even uh um, even with the entire thing in 2019, with the BJP coming close to the Zinomul, you know, uh, the thing was that, you know, A, that entire Lok Sabha bump was supposed to fade. And B, what had happened is that, you know, because of this NRC thing that they had been, well, the BJP had been pushing and the TMC had been pushing back against, in December when BIPOLs were held, the BJP actually got wiped out in all, all of the BIPOLs. Including, interestingly, the seat that was held by Dilip Ghosh himself. When he got elected to the Lok Sabha, he had to vacate that seat, obviously. That seat itself, they lost to the TMC. So, you know, it, the, the TMC was looking in a very strong position until that point of time. Suddenly, after Amphan, there was, you know, there was this you know, sort of, it, there was Amphan as well as the lockdown, right? And then suddenly you had a state government which couldn't really do much. But then, you know, it was working through its local functionaries who, I mean, like, it could have been that, you know, even if under normal circumstances, they would have been severely limited in their capacity to control them or whether they would have even attempted to control them because we know that at least corruption in the Trinomul Congress goes up pretty high. Uh, But the thing is, at least they have been able to control the narrative on the ground in some sense, but they actually completely lost control of the narrative as well. And the BJP completely started making a resurgence, which obviously led to all these defections in the later months, right? Uh, Like around December and now in January of this year. So, yeah. So So that that was
0: basically. While while that is happening, there are two very big events which happen in June. One is that uh, George Floyd is brutally murdered by the police, which leads to widespread movement against racism and general movement against police brutality in America led by the Black Lives Matter movement and the anarchists and the communists in America. It's a very popular movement on the street, lasts for months, has consequences, like consequences which perhaps have started to trickle down. American politics has, has been forced to drift leftwards. Thankfully, certain issues are now being discussed. I want Comrade Bela to speak a bit about that. And and also, another very important thing happened in June was that India's foreign policy went on a nosedive. Like India-Nepal ties worsened to a historical nadir. For the first time in history, Nepal claiming territory in Uttarakhand. China-India clashes Mm. happened in uh, Galwan. Uh, which led to an like in the middle of this pandemic, you had these idiots who wanted a war with China of all people, and you had a lot of uh, lot of almost cope behavior from these Indian right wingers. You know, we will ban apps, we will go... so various bullshit. India banned TikTok and things like that. So on America. You go, you go, comrade Belan on India. You go, comrade, from what start?
2: Um, yeah, I think the one of the things that was interesting about the George Floyd protests, is it certainly was a mainstreaming of Black Lives Matter that had not quite happened with some of the the previous protests, right? Ferguson was in twenty fourteen. Um, and your and and a series of events in between as well you know blm was very much sort of earmarked by right wingers here as uh in america as a sort of you know terrorist organization and you know very much prone to rioting and so on and so forth reverse racism was another term that was thrown around but in 2020 it finally seemed like america was finally waking up to the fact that this is a long standing uh, persistent problem uh police brutality seems to occur again and again brianna gray also happened around the same time i think um, and that, you know, these are, and, and I think some of these, the the circumstances of Brianna Great uh, being shot in her own home uh, while she was sleeping or at least in, in bed with her partner, um, uh, which I think later on they said might not have been in bed. But anyway, she was shot. The police officers broke into her home, basically, um, and and shot her in, in her own living room. Um, and then you had George Floyd who was basically accused or suspected of paying uh, for some purchases with fraudulent uh, cash and the police officer who came to sort of, you know, question him ended up restraining him in a really brutal way with a knee on his neck and of course um, that and and something about the nature of this violence which seems like these are very you know even if for instance Brianna if Brianna Joy Gray was a suspect or even if George Floyd was in fact you know using fraudulent money which uh, I don't think it it was ever proven that he was um, the level of brutality used to sort of restrain um, George Floyd and you know murder Brianna (laughs)
0: Brianna Gray was not a suspect. They accidentally came into her house, shot at her, and killed her. Literally, they they barged into her home and killed her. And the
2: rationale was that they suspected her partner of having stolen a car or whatever it was. Anyway, none of it is legitimate, right? Because there is no absolute, there is no justification whatsoever for what happened.
0: Simple home invasion and killing by the police. That's what it it was. was
2: was and then I, I think the the ways in which people were willing to risk COVID and turn up on the streets you know I think uh, in Minneapolis at least um you were seeing you know people cra- wearing masks trying to be diligent about not passing along COVID but clearly having reached a stage of, of, of such grief and anger that um COVID alone wasn't going to stop them you know um so I think in some ways it, it was heartening to see that you know you know when the big corporations start putting out BLM slogans and start doing the tokenizing that something has really become mainstream, and I think with with, uh, with a lot of the uh, with uh, with a lot of the problems of what you know these things going mainstream, it nonetheless at least becomes common sense. So I can tell you, for instance, there's a sudden spate of hiring across different jobs um, of black people. Diversity committees are getting a huge boost in organizations. People are trying to at least you know pay lip service to 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 having black representation in their in their you know uh, board of executives and things like that. Um, so and the media messaging is obviously significantly improved. You're suddenly seeing uh, black filmmakers, black media producers, um, black journalists, all sort of coming into uh, getting their credit and and at least getting hired and getting, you know, opportunities to produce content and things like that. So in some ways, I think America is having a real reckoning with race in ways that are interesting and, and pro- progressive in the larger run, whether or not some moves are more progressive than others is something worth discussing. I think what I found really interesting, though, is the way in which the world seemed to want to relate to this. Um, you, saw, you saw BLM protests in London, you saw BLM protests in India you saw BLM protests in several parts of the uh, world that to me are interesting I don't want to entirely dismiss it as oh everybody's obsessed with America and therefore you know we all need to sort of focus on what's happening back home but I do think there is a way in which American movements uh, have a certain sort of cachet and and you know trendiness that get picked up in a way that's something as simple as protests in India don't, right? Um, even though the numbers are probably comparable if not more. Um, And so I think definitely that I know Pramos will probably say that American discourse is poison and we really shouldn't have any of it. But I will say, I think it's interesting that in, India is now mainstreaming Black Lives Matter as well. And it's interesting that um these conversations can happen about race, for instance, but don't happen with caste nearly on the same scale, right? And we don't nearly talk about police brutality in India itself. You know, uh, the, the, the violence against those two men in Tamil Nadu that happened last year I I'm, I'm, i don't remember when it was Um, uh, was at least stirred up some of that conversation pretty soon after this but it's you know it takes a BLM to actually have that conversation about police brutality in India and I think that you know even after the Delhi riots we weren't talking about police brutality nearly as much as we should have but with BLM we do and I do think this is a problem and in this time it's you know,
0: right, but it is what it is. Yeah. Let's is let's talk a bit about China TikTok, God knows when China and TikTok are in the same sentence and basically the very interesting fact of the first time in Indian history, Nepal claiming Indian oh no no, Nepal claiming land in Indian held Utra. Let's, let's phrase it that way so let's have you speak a bit about this
1: uh, obviously like because of COVID uh, as it is Xenophobia in India was already at some kind of fever pitch, right? Mm. Um, the other thing is that, uh, the interesting thing is that uh, Modi for his part and the BJP under Modi for his part, until recently have actually attempted to have uh, excellent relations with China. Um, well, there was this entire idea that you know that in fact we should become better friends with China than Pakistan is. Like there was this idea going around. Interestingly, this was also an idea that was very very mainstream in right wing uh, think tank circles, for instance. So if you actually looked at some of the stuff that ORF and uh, even like these complete uh, BJP rags, which are not like even think tank stuff, but like complete pro BJP mouthpieces, like Swarajya was saying. They were pushing this idea that uh, India and China should try and get along and they should try working for, towards a mutually beneficial, sorry, mutually beneficial partnership and everything. But then what happened is that uh, obviously uh, it so happens that India and China do have a, a disputed border and in, especially around Ladakh. And uh, Uttar Pradesh, etc. And obviously now you have fisty cuffs going on between Indian soldiers and Chinese soldiers in some of these areas because in these areas you're not allowed to actually carry live weapons. So there was some really medieval shit, like some, you know, there was. Remember the time that just some Indians, you know, people started training with pole pole arms and everything, and people started supplying pole arms. I mean, like the army started supplying pole arms to the. Uh, Like both the Chinese and the Indian armies started supplying pole arms to the line of actual control so that their soldiers could take each other on in, frankly, medieval-style combat. So that was happening. And, uh, you know, the the interesting thing is that, you know, uh, instead of de-escalation at that point of time, the Indian media somehow uh, got in on the act and, you know, there was already a xenophobic wave going around. Uh, They simply added fuel to the fire and they kind of... In some sense, I think they also actually force the government to act because what usually happens is that you know these kind of border skirmishes happen all the time in general, like small in in some low intensity sense because you know there are people up there at high altitudes, nerves tend to get frayed and you know people do tend to like uh, (laughs) these kind of conflicts break out, but they don't generally turn out like this. Uh, What I think happened is that you know then but. Then, when the media started picking it up, there was suddenly all this anti-China sentiment going around. Then, obviously, there's COVID, which is being blamed on the Chinese. We already had incidents where people with certain uh, facial features were also like uh, you know uh, singled out and you know were racially abused in India. We had uh, bizarre incidents of people asking for boycotts of Chinese food and Chinese restaurants and whatnot. And then suddenly, you know, you have that, so that's the atmosphere you're dealing with anyway. And then suddenly, you know, the government is forced to act based on this kind of public sentiment.
0: When you uh, say it, when you say public sentiment against a Chinese restaurant, remember people had at some point also tried to boycott mainland China, a restaurant which has the word mainland China in its name. So that is the level we are yeah, dealing with here. It. And old Bengali. It, yeah, prof. <laughs>
1: Like, it's not even owned by a Chinese person. You had to mention the Bengali bit, didn't you? Uh, (laughs) On that note... No, I mean, like, this entire thing started off with boycotting restaurants owned by Chinese people, but they were so stupid that they didn't, like,
0: really figure out their mainland China. Stupid, sanghi people. I want to talk about one incident, just one incident from July, which is... uh, And we made, not an episode, but we made some bonus content on it. So we hope that our audience... Uh, actually pays for the bonus content. There is some fun stuff there time to time. Please do. So, in, in, in uh, July, there is a small war in the world called the Nagorno-Karabakh War. It's a conflict between Azerbaijan with Turkey on its side and Armenia with for some fucking reason Iran on its side. And we have south asians behaving like idiots about this war with the pakistanis suddenly finding themselves in eternal brotherhood with the azerbaijanis for some azerbaijan. reason azerbaijan and azerbaijan
2: what was no
0: remembering that armenia is a place and like pramod please like two minutes please please talk about this, like, I was into, like, I was like, the world has gone mad, there is COVID, and suddenly for some fucking like, reason, like, like, like you know, there is
1: like, fucking so, like God, so, so, okay, so the goddamn Pajids don't even, like, know where Azerbaijan and Armenia are, and, you know, the funniest thing is that Armenia happens to be a theocratic Christian state, uh, Azerbaijan is a very staunchly secular state which is um, sort of like, uh, you know, it, it's secular to the point that it basically goes on persecuting her religious site. Right? Um, and it's also Shia, by the way, well, mostly Shia. And suddenly you have, uh, because uh, Turkey, uh, because it's basically playing out as a proxy war between Iran and Turkey, right? Uh, Armenia is being backed by Iran and uh, Azerbaijan is being backed by Turkey. And Now, because Turkey is backing uh Azerbaijan where people from Pakistan with no fucking idea of what even Azerbaijan is or what its politics is like or the fact that they're actually strongly secular so this <laughs> entire Muslim umma thing doesn't really work with them um uh, they are like you know the Pakistan-Azerbaijan eternal brothers for life and whatnot when like, that kind of cringe happens and then suddenly Indians seeing that Pakistanis are like going and supporting uh, Azerbaijan and they assume that Azerbaijan is a Muslim country so you know it's going to be some sort of Islamic state or something they go and start supporting Armenia like <laughs> it was like some kind of weird uh, you know the weirdest thing that happened like obviously it made oh,
0: sense. Another weird thing happens around that time which is that the Hagia Sophia is converted to a mosque and you have like Random Twitter people defending it and calling it an act of decolonial whatever, like, yeah, like, please,
1: please, yeah. yeah. So basically, please. Nobody, um, so there's this idea within a particular strain of quote unquote Islamic political thought, uh, which basically thinks that, uh, uh, which actually gets Atatur- Ataturkism pretty wrong. So uh, they basically think of Atatürkism in a sense of a mandatory atheist uh, thing, in the sense that uh, say for instance Leninist uh, policy or Stalinist policy was in the USSR where there was this enforced state atheism in uh, the USSR. The thing that Atatürkism is sort of the same in Turkey, uh, which it was not in essence actually Atatürkism in many ways, was also a sort of nationalization of Islam. Um, but uh, in some sense, like, you know, there are some Islamist scholars who basically see uh, the history of Muslim-majority Muslim, Muslim countries uh, in the 20th century as being enmeshed in, uh, in, in, in a struggle between Ataturkism and uh, Salaf and a kind of Salafism, and they think that the Salafism is the good thing, and Atatürkism is basically evil. Um, They basically associate a lot of these very, very like you know strange uh, formations with this kind of Atatürkist modernity, which is like uh, uh, sorry, (laughs) keep saying Atatürkist should really say Kemalist. The proper word for this is Kemalist. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Um, so they basically associate Kemalism with not just Turkey, but they associate it with uh, Egypt, they associate it with pa- early Pakistan, they associate it with uh, uh, Iran under the Pahlavis and whatnot. Now, the thing is, uh, what has happened is that there is a sort of uh, big intellectual influence of a lot of Islamist thought on uh, modern um, some modernity. And I'm not necessarily saying this is a good or a bad thing. I don't want to litigate on this right now. But the thing is, uh, in that sense, Erdogan is a guy who basically sees himself as a sort of a restorationist. That he's suddenly bringing back money. So Erdogan has basically marketed himself as uh, kind of a few things. Firstly, at whom he's basically a Turkish nationalist. Uh, In every single sense of the term, as much as uh, uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk was, but at the same time, he also adopts a very Islamic, uh, in the more conventional uh, sense, in a more traditionalist sense than, say, Atatürk was, who was a very strict. uh, I mean, like who basically was a more of a uh, let's. Put it this way, a reformist kind of person. But again, uh, I mean, like this should not really be conflated with what we normally think of reform and uh, tradition and whatnot. But uh, suffice to say, basically, uh, uh, Erdogan basically sees himself as going back to the glory days of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and uh, the thing
2: is that he I I, If I was just to butt in here, I think what was interesting at the time was just that India had no official statement of sorts. They neither supported it nor did they uh, criticize it and I thought it was interesting because I think New Delhi was really in a fix because on the one hand if they praise it, they look like they're supporting Muslims but on the other hand if they criticize it, their own record with Babri would look extremely suspect, right? And the Ra- well,
1: Also I think it's because uh, India hasn't really figured out its relationship with Turkey right now Mm. Yeah, so the thing is that Erdogan uh, also tries presenting himself as Muslim Ride Samrat in some sense but then the idea that most Muslims have of him is like they also try seeing him as an Islamist in the Salafist sense but he's actually not because if he actually look at the kind of order that he belongs to and the kind of sect that he believes in he's actually um a strong believer He he's associated with certain Sufi uh, traditions mm. uh, also why, by, and this is, by the way, also why people should get out of this mindset of Sufism being good Islam and yeah. you know, Salafism being bad Islam and whatever. But yeah, he's not, he, he basically has a two-faced image. One is an image that he has at home and the other is an image he protects abroad. And especially since in some sense, other Muslim majority countries have been losing some sort of moral position, such as Saudi Arabia has been losing, and the UAE have been losing a lot of moral legitimacy with their, you know, partnering with Israel and whatnot. But what's also interesting is that Erdogan himself was one of the closest allies of Israel until very, very recently.
0: Yeah. On that note, let's actually talk about Bavari because August happens, and we are one of the most shameful. Uh, disgusting uh, 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 verdicts, which legitimizes the Babri uh, Masjid demolition. And also eventually all the people accused would be set free within that month. And also one of the biggest rats to have existed, a certain Chandra Choor. I want you guys to like, we have done an episode, our opinions on the gentleman in the black robes are well known. Oh yeah, that was fifth of August, right? That entire stick celebration, it was inauguration
1: of the Bhoomi Pujan. Kran, yeah, yeah Pujan and whatnot. I mean, like in a sense, it was very symbolic. I mean, like this is basically, uh, this is basically the birth of the Hindu Rashtra in some sense, as in like in the symbolic sense. Because if you actually look at what the sun has been. Again, we also
0: covered this in a previous episode, right? Significance yeah. of yeah, we have what... covered this, but we would still like to remind people to go hear those episodes. And yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So the thing is that there is this very, I mean, as far as the symbolism of the Hindu Rashtra is concerned, the Ram Janmuhumi is very, very central to it, and uh, this demolition of Babri, the very revengeist idea of this. And, uh, you know, the creation of this Ram Temple has been very, very central to Hindutva ideology for a very long time. And it's actually, interestingly, like like we discussed in a previous episode, it's actually something over which various different strands of Hindu nationalism actually united, right? So, there's that very important facet of that. And the fact is, in that sense, in many ways, like, I mean, like like, what's going on right now, right? Like, there are in may, many of these uh, cities with a major BJP presence, or rather a major RSS presence, you are having people like knocking on doors asking for donations for the construction of the Babri, uh, for the construction of the Ram Mandir in Taizabad. Uh, and uh, you know they're often threatening people. They're often marking doors about who's paid, who's not paid, etc. So in that sense, it's a very very symbolic birth of. The Hindu Rashtra, uh, you could argue that in some sense that, you know, this uh, bringing in of the NRC and I mean, the, the passing of the CA was also the start of it. But in this sense, like in, in the sense the like CA is again a very legal thing. Right. And but this is a much more symbolic thing. So it was very, very central to that project. And obviously, you know, many, most of, at least I certainly think that this is the start of a very, very, very dark direction in India's history. And I don't know whether it is even possible to ever come out of this. I mean, like, we have examples, right? Like, we have examples from our neighbors. Like, Mm -hmm. Bangladesh, again, did start off as a secular country. Uh, But very soon, it became an Islamic republic. And while there have been, you know, attempts at secularizing, re-secularizing the constitution and whatnot, uh,
2: mm-hmm. it
1: still nominally remains an Islamic Republic. Now, you can argue that the laws itself themselves don't discriminate. But, you know, when you describe something as a quote-unquote Islamic Republic, or in this case, you know, a Hindu Republic or whatever, you basically make it known to which community this country belongs first. And when you have that as an accepted principle, then I think, you know, it sets, it sets one of the darkest precedents I mean you have. And, you know, one of the things is that call it like I know there are a lot of cynical people who basically always said that, you know, secularism in India has been an eyewash for all the uh, majoritarian bigotry that goes on here. And there's nothing to deny the fact that India has a long and dark history of majoritarianism. But mm-hmm. I don't think this, you know, this entire uh, rhetoric of ha- quote-unquote masks off helps anyone either. Because ultimately, you know, the nakedness of this will result in, uh, and that is what you've seen, right? That uh, a kind of violence that will not be, you know, which will be endorsed by the state and which the state will not act against, right? And in a, And it will be celebrated. And this is what is happening since these days. I mean, like. One of the things is that we, uh, you know, Modi 2.0, I mean, like the uh, BJP government from 2014 to 2019 has been, I mean, the BJP government from 2019 to 20 to today has already been more aggressively Hindutva than anything that had happened between 2016 and 2019, uh, 2014 and 2019. So I think this is something that people should take cognizance of, and I don't really know whether we can ever recover from this.
0: Basically, the court saying that Babri never happened. Basically, giving an acquittal to all accused. Essentially,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: that very moment where you know where you know that uh, the state is utterly and completely complicit, including the court. And after that, you know that there will be a time that will come when people will get arrested for saying out this very thing. You know that the courts are essentially completely complicit. Uh, th- that was the moment where uh, you, know, you, you really start to question that uh, is anything at all recoverable or is only struggle our way to... and yeah I don't know I don't have good answers to that like the last couple of months of 2020 well a lot of still would happen. You would have Biden winning the US presidential elections and then thank God. Hello?
1: Thank God. And he's turned into base Biden the destroyer of neoliberalism very soon.
0: Yes, yes, yes. yes, We all know that. But uh, Biden winning does not solve America's problems. You have a lot of nonsense after that including things which have spilled over to 2021 including a mob of idiot rich rednecks who flew in to basically storm into the Capitol building and wave a few flags around, that was comical. That was kind of funny though. That was kind of funny, I said that was comical. Um, hmm. That their idea of an insurrection, I mean, it's, it's, my goodness. Uh, you have uh, uh, you know, random things in the world. In December, for example, yet again you have Israel bombing Gaza. Once more, you have yet again India arresting a bunch of activists from Kashmir again. It has been doing so. You know, UFPH charges, the list of people who have been in. um, You have comedians being arrested now who have not even done something or said something, let alone, you know, Mm -hmm. doing something actually. You have this disgusting case after case after case. Umar is still in jail have Munawar Farooqi. you have so many young Muslim men, young Muslim women who... Munawar got released though. Who got, Munawar got
2: released? No, just got
0: released. Yeah. Yeah. On bail, right? Like, yeah, I I remember more things, but like, I don't know how to, you know, like, do I even care? Like, do do I care that... uh, I don't know, something happened somewhere in Nepal, do
2: I, I, yeah, what, I, mean, okay. I don't know at what point now the, the various offenses of what a fascist state has done, um, it's become harder and harder to sort of think of these as, you know, as not as a collective sort of crime against Indian citizens, but like sort of individual, you know, assaults on freedoms or whatever it is. To me, it's,
0: you start to live in this mental position where you are constantly afraid, where you are constantly worried, where you are constantly, yes. worried, you are constantly anxious. But, yes. but also, you stop seeing these things as separate things. You're basically, oh, one more thing, or oh, one more person got arrested, or oh, I yes. happen to know yes. this person. Yeah, I mean, got like,
1: this? it's become horrifyingly. Like, you know, we've become horrifyingly used to it over the past year, I think.
2: And I mean, the, yeah. the way in which the state has not ceased even for a moment, forget COVID, forget economy, cra- like, nothing has stopped, for instance, the work of the NIA, which continues to arrest people, which continues to probably plant fake evidence from uh, going by one of the recent reports. Yeah, uh, remember, remember remember
1: the most- accused that many of them did suffer from COVID. Yes, uh, they did that awful thing with Stan Swami. So, I mean, that was something that really broke me. Like the entire incident that you know, Stan Swami being uh, denied a sipper
2: yeah I mean, it's very clear right like these, this for me is kind of like at what point do we start we, peddle the, we are a secular democratic state this is all garbage we are a fascist state um that is where we are at in history um and what we have to do to counter it at this point just seems enormous and huge and entirely impossible so i feel like um one is to find ways in which you work somewhere in some way to actually uh, build some kind of organized resistance and it need not be like full on revolution or whatever it is you know trying to make sure that people are
0: protected that... do, do something all right make your own group of people who just sit and talk or go and protest or go and do activism or do something don't do don't do nothing you know if you don't do nothing
1: you yeah, know but do. at this point like okay so when we started off this the last year we were very hopeful like you know we were uh, advertising fundrais. you know we were advertising fundraisers even in 2019 early part of 2020, we were doing that, but suddenly, it's like 2020 has basically, at least for me, it's killed all hope. Uh, I mean, like, it, I mean, like, you know, in a sense, okay, so for for what it's worth, maybe the recent farm protests, which we'll cover in a recent, uh, in a subsequent episode, I guess, uh, has shown that, you know, there are some kinds of protests which will make the Indian government sort of nervous, but again, the thing is that what we've seen otherwise has been very, very depressing and that, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, you know, there is probably no hope and especially the way they've gone after Muslims and especially any anti-government activists, any anti-government protest, any disciples-
0: All alternative politics happened inside that uh, Islamophobic Anti-migrant framework. Everybody else has adjusted. It seems like even these um, protests. So that is something pot- we discussed in a brabari episode in twenty nineteen.
1: Yeah, if, if you remember yeah. that, uh, one of the things that we saw, like right after that verdict came out, was that even parties like the RJD, like the RJD, uh, you know, if, if, if we all used to talk about the RJD and the CPIM etc., as in in 1990 some uh, when in the 1990s when this happened like they were resolutely against it they were like taking aggressive stances against it right like Lalu mm-hmm. Prasad Yadav making that huge speech you know about uh, opposing communalism the Mandal movement etc and then suddenly you see that you know some very prominent uh, people you know in the RJDA ecosystem are suddenly like saying okay let's accept this and uh, you know, we should like argue for Dalit priests and Ram Janma Bhumi. Um, yeah, the CPIM, which is basically now saying, Okay, we have to accept the verdict, uh, etc. Uh, so that was very depressing. That's not 2020, it was 2019, but it's also a reflection of uh, where the positions were on uh, this thing. I'm like leaving aside uh, the SM NRC because almost every single party has been on board with that for uh, since 2005, so that's not something that's. Uh, specific to 2019 or 2020 um, apart from the PMC of late which was the only party to have aggressively opposed the thing but then again that's because they are a party uh, whose base is in West Bengal where it's which is one state where uh, uh, the NRC has been extremely unpopular Um, but uh, otherwise I mean like most parties have caved into it since 2005 itself however the thing is that you know even on other issues you know which you thought were, you know, like rest of India and, you know, you'd oppose communalism, etc. You've seen that almost every single party, even the so-called Mandal movement, you know, which people like Christophe Jaffrello, etc. had and had correctly analyzed as some uh, as a movement that had actually stemmed the rise of the Hindutva in North India, especially in Uttar Pradesh, right, which was supposed to be the Hindu, uh, Hin- the heartland of the Hindu nationalist movement in some mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. It had successfully managed to stem its rise for decades. And then suddenly now you see that all these parties are also like moving within that framework and basically arguing within that framework as to what to do, what not to do. I so mean, I, I
2: do want to say that I do think I, I sense a real sort of popular um skepticism towards the Sung and the bjp's politics that i don't think was there maybe four or five years ago there is definitely a sort of certain recognition that a lot of what the the center does right now is for theater and for posterity there's a lot of mockery around you know for instance the farmers protests and how the government has reacted there has been some degree you know the international mobilization also i mean i i feel like partly the overreaction and we'll probably talk about this in the actual episode then we'll do a farm protest, but i feel like some of the overreaction of of the the center and the the song, um, basically but...
0: the song also is stupid at times yes and when it is, so also it what is, I feel
2: is some popular resentment here I, I do think that there, is, there are pockets of real resentment against uh, Hindutva the Sangh BJP etc that I, I do think are worth thinking about the problem of course is that we don't have an organized resistance against it we don't have a systemic sort of struggle on the ground even in, even in, in, on, on a small scale like on a regional scale we don't see effective mobilization against the Sangh which in some ways is very defeating but I think the fact that there is some popular resentment means that there is some work to be done here that we can actually do um, as leftists and I'm I'm not claiming at all to have any solutions at this point on, on strategies on how to do this but I do think it's possible like it can be done um, even hypothetically right now right and I feel like okay. trying to figure that out is going to take our lifetime
1: that, uh, this is that how
2: many oh, one, second, this, one right? second both of you are speaking together let, 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 let Chandu go first and Pramod you go after him
0: as a podcast, there is a lot of things to think about. And we'll be thinking about them in future episodes. We'll take all of the issues and we will create episodes on them. And you will see a lot more from us. We have been very, uh, we have been very depressed and slow last year, but now we are going to pick up speed. The podcast will be much more uh, active in our thinking, and we'll try to. At least talk about some of these areas where where there is the potentiality of poking things, or where there is analysis possible, and where the totality of the mm-hmm. project is doing appears to have fractures. Uh, you will see us around, and you will hear a lot more
2: from us. So. I also want to lastly say that I feel like one of the things I have been trying to make peace with in the last couple of months at least, I mean, couple of months because I've been thinking about it, but overall from the last year, is the fact that a lot of our activism or participation in social movements is really driven by the idea of having to witness change uh, within our community. With, you know, within as as soon as possible. Um I think what we have to make peace with is actually right now that many of us may not live to see the sun defeated in our lifetime, but that's okay as long as we actually do the work of planting some seeds and actually seeing uh, our efforts come into fruition at 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 some future. You I know? like
1: that—that's basically like you know what I mean, like. To me, it's basically this entire thing. You know, I've I've spoken to people in Bangladesh uh, for a while. I mean, like since before 2017, etc. And there was always, uh, regarding this stuff, there was always a spirit of pessimism. And I think that now, you know, I finally feel like, you know, I can sympathize with them and empathize with them <laughs> to a large extent. <laughs> because, but you know, ultimately perhaps-
2: this can be organized through pessimism. And I feel like that is a question that we have to answer with a positive yes. You know, maybe yeah. we have to, we have to face the pessimism that this is not going to change in five or ten years in the next government or even yeah. the government.
0: after that. that into our strategizing. See, uh, in this podcast, see, I can't speak a lot about my real world politics, etc. But uh, as a as a member of this podcast, all I would say is that we need to keep making a concrete analysis of the concrete conditions. Like we can't give in to despair to an extent that we stop working worse we stop thinking we can't afford that right now there is the the luxury of despondency does not exist so we have to keep thinking uh um, yeah. there are many yeah but like
1: like the problem to me is like you know uh Like, I, I mean, like, right now, I think the most threatened, I mean, like, it's indisputable that the most threatened group in India right now are Muslims, right? right. And, like, it, it, it's hard for me to even be slightly optimistic about this because seeing how things have progressed so far, it's very hard for me to look at, tell anyone who is Muslim that there is a better future for them in this country. Country, because I I honestly cannot like do this with,
0: with a straight face. I
2: I don't even know if this is necessarily about simply promising a better future. I think yeah, I mean, it's
0: not your job to like it's promise it's anything to
2: anyone. I, right? I mean, like, I'm not saying
1: it's my personal job to promise anyone anything because I can't obviously do that. But I'm mean, like to say that things might be better in the future is
2: something that I cannot. I like, don't, I not say things may be better in the future. I said the sun needs to be defeated in the future. And okay. I, don't, I do think there's a huge gap between the sun being defeated and things being better, by the way. I don't, At the end of the day, uh, what I'm saying is yeah, that yeah. asking people to live so, without so, any hope is so, not something so, that... Can do. You
0: will all die. It's fine. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there is the heat death of the universe. And before that, a lot might happen. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, we're really like Waiting for the You know for, for the sun to turn into a red giant Before all of this ends
2: Yeah So So in that so, point, let point not very hopeful that any activism is going to help, but the rest of us are not. Perhaps. So, thank you, for, thank you for supporting the pod. I will say that. Um, and many we've we've not really been committed enough to to produce enough content. Um, every month, I know that, but we're trying to also get through some it's very difficult times.
0: That is a hard year for all of us. That is fine. Yes. The Pod will last decades. So. Uh, you know a bit a little hiccup here and there is completely okay Uh, i am uh, completely confident that we will soon have many episodes a month so on that note everybody
2: on that note thank you good
1: night